You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. Gospel of John chapter 5. We'll read together verses 39 through the end of the chapter. John 5 verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Father, we come now to your word, and it is the desire of our hearts to hear you speak in the pages of this book. Make the scriptures come alive to us, we pray. We know that in all that we have sung and all that we have said and all that we pray, that we speak to you, but that is nothing in comparison to hearing you speak to us in the pages of scripture. Thank you for this inerrant, certain, reliable word that you have committed to us and given to us as a gift of your grace. We pray that you would now sanctify us by it, encourage us where we are in need of encouragement, and strengthen us where we are weak. Exhort us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have come now to the conclusion, and I mean not of my sermon, but of John's recorded sermon of Jesus. And I know that might be a disappointment to you. You're thinking, wow, Jim's starting with the conclusion. This is shaping up to be a good Sunday. But no, we come to the conclusion of this discourse of Jesus in John 5. Um, these are the concluding verses, and this is where Jesus is going to now be sort of bringing everything that he has said thus far all together into one point in order to elicit a response from his hearers. He has laid out for them his claims that he is the Lord of life, he is sovereign, he is equal with the Father, he has the authority and the ability to work on the Sabbath and do everything on the Sabbath, that the Father has done. Then he has brought forth his witnesses, John the Baptist, the works that he did, the Father, and the Scriptures, all of whom testify of this. He has presented all of that evidence, and now he brings all of this to a close. And in verses 41 through the end of the chapter, this is the concluding remarks. And what Jesus is doing in these closing verses is taking everything he has said, and he is now driving it home to the hearts of those who are listening to him, with the goal being to elicit from them a response. Now, what response do you think Jesus wants from them? Jesus never taught simply for the sake of giving information or simply for the sake of informing his hearers. He never taught to wow people with his oratorical abilities. Jesus always taught with the aim of having them apply his teachings and respond in a God-honoring and appropriate way. You see it all the way through the Gospels when you read Jesus' teaching. You see him encouraging them to build their house on the solid rock as opposed to the sand, to return from their sin and to follow him, to become his disciples, to, to obey him and to listen to him and to believe upon him and to receive him whom the Father has sent. All of that is what Jesus is aiming at. You can see now there's a, been a slight change in emphasis as we've gone from his claims to the witnesses that support his claims 
And now to his conclusion, you see him begin to emphasize something that he has sort of driven at through the rest of this discourse, but now he's really going to emphasize it, and that is the subject of belief or the the response of belief. You see it mentioned first in verse 38 of chapter 5. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom the Father has sent. And then he says, he talks about belief again in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Look at verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What is Jesus driving at? Belief. He has presented his claims. He has presented the evidence. And now he is wanting them. He is asking them. He is demanding that they turn from their sin and believe upon him and entrust themselves to Him, and to receive Him. And this is their condemnation all the way through, that though light has come into the world, that they rejected the light. And the one that the Father has sent, they rejected the one that the Father has sent. And all the way through the passage we have seen this. This is what God expects. This is who Jesus is. This is the right response. And this is what their response has been. It has been one of rejection. In the face of overwhelming evidence, in the face of enormous testimony, in the face of of immense proof that his claims are true, they responded with unbelief, with disbelief. And listen, it wasn't a casual dismissal. Like, oh, we'll just deal with that later. It wasn't that. And it wasn't simply, okay, we've heard you, now we're just going to go on to something else. Their rejection was, listen, an intentional, deliberate, willful, informed rejection of the light. They understood, and Jesus made it clear, exactly who it was that they were rejecting. They were rejecting the light and they were choosing instead darkness. And the reason they were choosing darkness and rejecting the light was not because they did not have enough evidence, because unbelief is always due to what? A love for darkness and it is never due to a lack of evidence. It is never due to a lack of evidence. And John 5 has shown us that. So now we come to the end of this chapter and Jesus is summing all of this up. We're going to be looking today at verse 41 through 44. And there are three characteristics of an unbelieving heart. He has said in verse 40, you are unwilling to come to me, right? The problem was their will. The will that they had was not their glory. It was their shame and their ruination. And they refused to come to him. They were unwilling. They did not will to entrust themselves to Jesus. And that was their damnation. That was their ruination. Their eternal destruction was because they lacked the will. And their will was enslaved to sin. And their will was corrupt. And they did exactly what they willed to do. And they did not will to come to him. And so they were going to receive the just condemnation that is due to somebody who willfully rejects what is true. So now having identified an unbelieving heart, they are unwilling to come to him. Jesus now goes on to identify three things that characterize that unbelieving heart. And conveniently for us, at least if you're holding an NASB in your lap, all three of those points kind of revolve around a phrase that is repeated throughout verses 41 through 44. And it is that phrase, you do not. He says it three times, you do not. The first one is in verses 41 to 42. This is the first quality of an unbelieving heart. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have, you do not have the love of God in you. That is a misplaced affection. You do not have the love of God in you, a misplaced affection. The second one, verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. That is a misplaced trust. They had a misplaced affection. They didn't have a love for God. They had a misplaced trust, that is, they would not receive Jesus. If if anybody else came in their own name, they would receive Him, but not the one who came in the Father's name. And the third quality of an unbelieving heart is a misdirected pursuit. Verse 44, 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? So a misplaced affection, a misplaced trust, and a misdirected pursuit were the three things that characterized an unbelieving heart. Now listen, those are the three things that once characterized you, if you are now in Christ, and they are also three things that you and I need to watch out for because there is something in our unredeemed flesh, our unredeemed humanity, that still gravitates back toward all of those things, seeks to place our affections on something else, put our trust in something else, and make us to pursue things that are not Christ and are not worthy of our pursuit. So those three things, and these three points in this whole passage actually begged to become three separate sermons, but I resisted that temptation, and we're going to deal with all three of them here this morning in order that we could keep our breakneck pace through the Gospel of John and finish in a timely manner. So beginning in verse 41, the first one, a misdirected or a misplaced affection. Jesus said in verse 41, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. The first quality, the first quality of a, of an unbelieving heart is that they do not have a right love for God. You do not have the love of God in yourselves. Now Jesus starts, I do not have, I do not receive a glory from men. What does he mean by that? What type of glory is he talking about? The word glory, doxa, in the Greek can have a number of different meanings depending on its context and different ways in which it is used. In this context, the word glory means praise, applause, uh, acceptance, or esteem. And what he has in mind here in verse 41 is all of that from men. I do not receive praise, applause, and esteem from men. Now it's true that Jesus did not get those things even though he was worthy of those things. But the glory that he got did not come from men. And Jesus didn't receive glory from men. Now I think it is kind of difficult to understand exactly what Jesus means by this, but I think it is something akin to this. I believe what Jesus is saying is, do not think that my, my, uh, in, what's the word? Do not think that my drive to get you to believe, to receive the one whom the Father has sent, and to entrust yourself to me, is because I need your approval. I do not receive and I do not long for and I do not need your applause, the approval of men. He returns back to this idea of men giving glory to one another in verse 44. How is it? How can you believe if you receive glory from one another, but you don't seek after the glory that is from God? And I think here in verse 41, Jesus is saying something akin to this. Don't think that my desire for you to believe in me has anything to do with my wanting your acceptance, your approval. In other words, I'm not standing here because I want in the Pharisee crowd. I'm not asking you these things. I'm not demanding these things of you. I'm not presenting these truths because I want you to accept me into your clique. I don't receive any glory from you. It doesn't do me any good to have you entrust yourself to me. I'm not dependent upon you for your acceptance. Have you met people like that who are just begging for people to accept them? They want to be accepted. They want to be applauded. They want the applause and the glory and the esteem of men. Jesus did not. And that's what he's saying in verse 41. But, in contrast to Jesus, but I know you. I know your heart. I know what is in you. That is a claim to omniscience, by the way. That is a claim that something, that is a claim that only God could make. Only God in human flesh. To know their hearts. To know what it is, what is their motive. What was Jesus' motive? It wasn't the acceptance of men. He wasn't seeking the applause and the approval from men. But what was their motive? But, Jesus says, in contrast to me, I know you. And I know your heart. And I know that your desire and your love is not for God. You do not have the love of God in you. Do you remember back at the end of chapter 2, it said that a lot of people believed in Jesus. Many believed in Him in Jerusalem when He was doing the signs. And they came to believe in Him. But it says Jesus did not commit Himself to any of them. Why? Because He knew what was in man. He knew what was in their hearts. And He knew that their approval and their belief was 
only a shallow, hypocritical, not lasting, man-made belief. It was because of the signs that he did that they entrusted themselves to him. But they did not truly receive him. And here he is saying, he's making the same statement. I know what is in you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. And that love of God is not the love that God gives to us that we show to others. It's not that type of love. It's not the love that comes from God through us. But it is the love, Jesus speaking, of the love that we should have for God. You do not have that love of God in yourselves. Now let me ask you this. What is the first and greatest commandment of the law? What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the law was God after the sacrifices and the blood and the animals and the incense and all of that. Was the law really about the feasts and the festivals and those things? They were important. They had their role. But what was God getting at behind all of the law? Behind all of the law, the ceremonial law, the circumcision law, the, the law regarding families, the, the theocratic law, all of the law was given for one purpose. And that was to direct the hearts and the minds of His people toward Him. And God was not interested in superficial obedience. That's why Jesus condemned those who said, um, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, because what did God want? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, to love the Lord your God. That was... That was the overarching umbrella of the entire law. Keep in mind that Jesus is speaking to a group of men who prided themselves on keeping all of the minutia of the law. We saw this in, co- in connection with the Sabbath issue at the beginning of the chapter. They were professional pickers of nits when it came to the law. They could weed out that and they could weigh out this and they could tie this and they could go there and they had all of the rules and the regulations and all of that. Picking nits in every corner of the law. But... Here Jesus is saying, you have missed the fundamental requirement of the law. You do not have a love for God. They thought that their zeal for the temple, their zeal for the Sabbath, their zeal for the law, their zeal for the sacrifices, their zeal for outward righteousness was equal to a love for God. And in fact, it was not. So here, to those who prided themselves on being lovers of the one true God, Jesus is saying to them, I know your hearts, And that in you there is no genuine, true love for God. The love that the law requires, that you think you have, you do in fact not have. You can almost sense, I think, sitting there, you would have been almost able to sense the palpable indignation of those people toward Jesus. Who are you, a son of a carpenter, a no-name man named Joseph, from Nazareth, to lecture us on the law and the requirements of the law, and the love for God. Who are you to tell us that we don't have a true love for God? And yet that was indeed the state of their hearts. They did not have a true love for God. Did they love the law? Yeah. Temple? Yep. Sabbath? Oh yeah, all of that. Rules and regulations, outward shows of righteousness. They loved all of that, but they were devoid of the love for God. That's where you were when you got saved, by the way. You truly had no true love for God in your hearts. It is God who has to shed the love that we have for God abroad in our own hearts and give to us a love for God. Now listen, we can have a whole sermon where I just lecture you and myself about the fact that we don't love God enough, and that's true, isn't it? We know that we don't love God enough. We know that we don't love God in a way in which He is worthy. We know that we do not offer to God either the the degree of love of which He is worthy or the type of love that He is worthy of. If we were to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
then we would be able to fulfill the law, but we can't do that. We can't do that for one second. Even the richest love, the purest love, the most um, sentient, emotional feelings of love that you and I have ever had for God falls far short of what He is worthy of in this life because there, we still have this unredeemed flesh that distracts our affections. Even my purest offerings of service to the Lord are mingled with all that is unredeemed in me and about me. And all that is unredeemed and is true of me. And so I don't love God the way I should. You don't love God the way you should. You haven't for one moment of your life since you were born to this day loved God as you should. We are not capable of that. But there is something inside a child of God that says, I long to be free of that. And I look forward to the day, and I want to grow in my love for the Lord, and I look forward to the day when my unredeemed humanity will be taken away from me, and I will be able with undistracted devotion to offer myself to the Lord in pure love and praise and honor without the distractions of everything that goes on around me and to be able to give my whole being in the type of love that He empowers me to do. And so as believers, we ought to pray to that end and say, Lord, I want to love you more. I know that I don't love you like I should. Let the gospel be to me a motivation to love you as I should and to love you with a pure heart because I know I fall short in this. But friends, this is the state of an unredeemed heart that it does not have a right affection for God, a misplaced affection. And the longing of our heart should be to offer to God the affection that He is worthy of. We know that we don't do this, and we know that we can't do this, but we want to strive to do this, and the gospel should motivate us to do this and to empower us to do this. And by His Spirit, we grow in this, always recognizing that we fall short of it, and always recognizing that your heart and my heart can putrefy just like that. Instantly, when we neglect the means of grace, we remove ourselves from sanctifying influences that direct our hearts to God as they should. Our hearts become putrid factories in a hurry. Just in a hurry. So, a misplaced affection. Misplaced affection. That's the first mark of an unbelieving heart. That's the thing you and I have to war against even as believers is that our affections do not become impure toward God because it can happen quickly. Second, Not only a misplaced affection, but also a misplaced trust or confidence. Look at verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. This, I think, is one of the most intriguing verses out of this whole latter part of the passage. I have come in my own name, and you do not receive me. And here's what Jesus means by that. He didn't come promoting his own credentials. He didn't come uh, trumpeting his own agenda. He came really with one purpose, and that was to reveal the Father... To honor the Father, remember verse 23, you honor the Father by honoring the Son, and he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, and you can't honor the Father if you're not going to honor the Son. So Jesus came in order to honor the Father. He came in the Father's name. He came not to do His own will, but the will of Him who sent Him. He came to do the Father's works, to speak the Father's word, to reveal the Father, to honor the Father, to direct men's uh, people's attention to the Father. It was all about coming in the name and in the agenda and for the purpose and the glory of somebody else. And what did they do with him? They rejected him. Now how corrupt, how wicked, how darkened is the heart of man? Here's how darkened it is. And this is such a scathing and condemning statement. If another comes in his own name, that is, totally unconcerned with the glory of the Father, only promoting his own agenda, only trying to accomplish his own honor and glory, doing his own works, claiming his own things, seeking glory and followers for himself. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Isn't that scathing? 
Isn't that an indication of the darkened human heart? Here was the Lord who came to honor the Father, and they rejected Him. But if another comes seeking no honor for the God they claim to worship, Him they will receive. And it is indeed true that many of them they did receive. They did receive. J.C. Ryle and uh, Leon Morris in their commentaries on the Gospel of John said that Jewish historians have noted or enumerated no less than 64 messianic claimants from the first century after the death of Christ before the year 100. 64 people who rose up claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the son of David, seeking glory for themselves and followers for themselves. And you know what the Jews did? They followed after him. One after another, after another, after another. They followed after those men. The real Messiah showed up and they rejected him. But many more came in their own names and they followed after them. In fact, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. was instigated by a revolt that was started by a man who claimed to be the Messiah and that revolt went on in 66 A.D. And in response to that false Messiah, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. 64 of them, the Jews followed them, one right after another. J.C. Ryle notes this, The readiness with which they believed these impostors is remarkable historical fact and a striking fulfillment of the words before us. They proved as willing to believe these pretenders to a divine mission who came in their own names as they were unwilling to believe our Lord. They were as unwilling to believe Jesus as they were willing to believe anybody who claimed to be the Messiah who wasn't Jesus. And that's what they did. One right after another, they believed him. Listen, I don't think that the fulfillment of this verse and this phrase is yet even fulfilled today, or even just in the first century. As the Lord's coming return draws nearer, you will see more false Christs and more false prophets, more men who claim to be the Messiah coming onto the scene until ultimately all of that culminates in the one false Christ who promotes himself as a Christ who the entire nation of Israel will go after, a real personal antichrist that the Bible predicts, a son of perdition, one who will fulfill Daniel's prophecies and Revelation's prophecies, and the entire nation of Israel will go after that man. There are some people and sometimes when people are just unwilling to believe the truth and they are willing to believe almost any lie. Now if you think that this certainly this condemnation just applies to those Jews, those Pharisees of a, of a bygone generation, let me tell you something. The unwillingness of people to believe the truth and to believe a lie is something that is true both inside and outside the church today. Inside and outside the church today. Let me give you an example. Every cult, every false religious system that exists today that is growing is of recently late origin. And I'm talking about Christian deceptions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and other false religions like that. All of them are of recent origin. But people do not want anything to do with the old truth, but they will accept any more recent thing that comes up. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, says, It is a gross folly of many that while while they nauseate the ancient truths, I love that word, while they nauseate ancient truths, they are fond of upstart errors. They loathe manna and at the same time feed upon ashes. That's the truth. You, you take old-fashioned things like expository preaching, the Word of God, Scripture, the text of Scripture, sound doctrine, all of these things that have been around for 2,000 years. And you offer that to the modern evangelical church, and guess what you will get? By and large, you'll get rejected. But you offer to them any passing fad, 
whether it is the purpose-driven life, the purpose-driven church, the seeker-sensitive movement, the emergent church, the prayer of Jabez, the purpose-driven prayer of Jabez, or whatever the latest weekly fad is, and guess what you will get? People will flock after those. Flock after those. It's evident today with people buying these books about heaven. Heaven is for real. But the little boy who supposedly died, went to heaven, saw a vision, came back to tell us about it. And 90 minutes in heaven, and 23 minutes in heaven, and 23 minutes in hell, and half an eternity in purgatory, and all of the other books that are published out there that purport to tell us something about the afterlife. Christians buy those books, they gobble them up, they read them, they can recite to you the entire story. Justin Peters, I talked with him a couple weeks ago on the phone, he said he went to hear one of these guys preach, who was, because he's in this discernment ministry thing, he went to hear one of these guys preach, who wrote the book, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Don Piper, no relation to John Piper, so you're safe there, by Don Piper, and uh, he listened, he read the book, and he listened to the guy preach. And you know what? The crowd was packed, I think it was two or three nights in a row, that people filled this big Baptist church to hear this guy preach and talk about what he saw in heaven. Most of those people who buy that book and who know the story and have read it and have studied it and gone through Bible studies and promoted it to their friends could not turn you to one passage in the Scriptures that teach on the subject of heaven and tell you what it says. Not one. 2,000-year-old book that has not changed for two millennia it is the inspired truth of God, and people will abandon that. They're not interested in that. But give them some book uninspired from somebody who claims to have visited heaven last week, and it's a number one bestseller. Why? Because the truth they do not want, the inspired truth they do not want, but anybody else's testimony they will take. It is this, That is the exact same mentality that plagued the Jews. If somebody comes in their own name, you will receive him. But me, who come in the name of the Father, you reject me. Why? Because some people hate the truth, and they love error. And they hate the light, and they love darkness. And they turn to the darkness because they cannot stomach the light. They nauseate the ancient truths, and they feed upon ashes when manna is right there beside them. I alluded to this last week. When I talked about experience, you, you ask people in the evangelical church, what would you rather have, a voice from heaven or the written word of God? 99% of the time, you will get this answer, a voice from heaven. That's what they want. Or an experience. You ask evangelical Christians today, what do you want, the testimony of the little six-year-old boy or the testimony of the Apostle John about heaven? Which do you prefer? They'll take the testimony of the six-year-old boy nine times out of ten. Why? Because it's a flashy, elaborate experience. You know what God does? When we shut our eyes to the truth, God will suffer a thousand errors to be presented to us, misleading lights, so that we will pursue any of them. That is the just judgment of God. You know what the judgment of God is upon the evangelical church? The Christians are being led astray in a thousand different directions because we have shut our eyes to the ancient truths. A misplaced trust characterizes the Jews, characterizes most of modern evangelicalism today. The third characteristic of an unbelieving heart, verse 44, a misdirected pursuit. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? They had a misplaced affection and a misplaced trust and they also had a misdirected pursuit. How can you believe? Now this speaks of the ability to believe, right? Last week we talked about the unwillingness to believe. You are unwilling to come to me. Verse 40. How can you believe? You don't have the ability to believe. Verse 44. So long as you are seeking glory from men. Now were the Pharisees seeking glory from men? Oh, it was all about glory from men. We saw that with the Sabbath. 
They wanted people to know when they fasted and how they fasted and how long they fasted and what they fasted from and when they gave and what they gave and how long they were giving and the amount that they gave. They wanted people to see all of the outward works of righteousness. They were seeking the glory that comes from men, the praise, the esteem, and the applause of men. And all of their religion, all of their Jewish religion, was geared to get other people to say, Wow, he is righteous. I want to be as holy as that person. Look at him give and fast and recite the law. Look at all of his outward deeds of righteousness. I want to be just like that. They wanted the best seats at the synagogue. They wanted the best seat at the table. They wanted to sit in the seat of Moses. They wanted people to be able to see from the way they judged, or the way they walked, the way they talked, the way they dressed, their righteousness. And they were seeking glory from men. And because the applause of men was for them an idol, they were unable to believe. How can you believe when you seek glory from men? The answer to that is it is impossible. Why is it impossible? Because as long as the applause of men is your idol, you will not have a believing heart. Because as long as your eyes are fixed on that, you are not going to be able to pursue the glory of God. What they did not want was the praise or the glory that comes from God. What must they do to get God's approval? Was there anything they could do to get God's approval? Yes, believe upon His Son and honor the Father by honoring the Son and then they would seek the approval of God. Then they would have God's approval, but they weren't interested in that. What they wanted was the applause and the approval from men. They wanted men's glory. Do you know how antithetical seeking the glory that comes from men is with seeking the glory of the one true God? Galatians 1.10, Paul says, if I'm seeking to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You can't seek to please men and be a servant of Christ at the same time. James 4.4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul says, his ministry was been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God. You have to choose between one of those two things because you cannot do both. Show me a pastor who is welcome to give the inaugural prayer for a presidential candidate who is pro-homosexual, pro-abortion, and self-consciously wicked, and I will show you a pastor who does not have the approval of God. You cannot have both. You can think you have both. You can think that all men love you, and think that God is pleased with you, but you are deceived on the one because God cannot be pleased with you if all men love you. It's impossible. You cannot please God that way. You have to choose one or the other. And as long as you are seeking only the glory that comes from men, and the applause and the approval of men, you cannot have what pleases God. How do you get what pleases God? It's not until you say, you know what? There is a being more glorious than these men whose honor I seek, whose glory I have disparaged and hated and shunned and rejected, whose glory I have marred because I have failed to display that glory. And because I have been a wicked person, who has lied and stolen and blasphemed His name and walked in rebellion to Him, I have grieved Him and His glory and He is angry with me. So what can I do to seek what pleases that glorious being who is my judge? Because if I stand before Him without, without anything else in my hands, I'm going to be judged and it's going to be severe and it's going to be just and it's going to be right and it's going to be eternal. So I want Him to be pleased with me when I stand before Him. How do I get... His pleasure. There is only one way, and that is to stand in His Son with whom He is infinitely pleased. To stand inside His Son 
in whom he delights and has infinite pleasure. But until I come to the point where I care nothing for the praises of men, and all I care is for that which pleases God, and to be able to stand before him, and to please him, then I can't believe. How can you believe when you seek glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? They could not believe. As long as the applause of men was an idol before their eyes, their hearts would never turn to Christ. That is why I said several weeks ago, the problem with unredeemed man is, number one, that he is unwilling, and number two, that he is unable to come to Christ. Unwilling and unable. He is unable because his eyes are blinded and because the idols are before his eyes, and he clings to those things. Those who do not believe, do not believe, not because of lack of evidence, but because of a love for darkness. The light has come into the world, and this is the judgment, that men love darkness rather than light. And so they had a misplaced affection. They did not have the love of God in them. They had a misplaced trust. They accepted anybody but the one true God who stood in their midst. And they had a misdirected pursuit. They were interested in the praises of men and not in the praise that comes from the one true God. That is what characterized you and I before we came to faith in Christ. That is what God has delivered you from, Christian. If you're an unbeliever and you're here today, that is still describes you and your problem and your situation before God. And His judgment will be just. And the only way He can be pleased with you is if you stand in His Son, before Him on Judgment Day. Because in His Son and with His Son's righteousness, He is infinitely pleased. And that is how we are made pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, You are so gracious and so righteous. You have warned us in Your Word of the things which are dangerous to our hearts. And we want to take these things to heart and be constantly aware of our propensity to misplace a true affection for You with a false affection for anything else. And we want to be aware of the danger to misplace our confidence in other things other than your Son and the righteousness that we have in Him. And also, Father, to shun any attempts to please men, but to simply be servants of Christ. Keep us from these things and turn our hearts and affections toward you and toward you alone. For your glory's sake and in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.